Welcome to Coffee, Conversations, and Badasses Podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Hayes. We bring you heroic stories from badass people who overcame mental health, addiction, relationship, and business struggles. The road to success doesn't come easy, but these badasses didn't quit. The heroic stories are told with the hopes of saving lives and to let you know you're not alone during these difficult times. And the show wouldn't be made possible without our sponsors. Red, white, and badass brew. Coffee as bold as American spirit. And Go Man Go Productions. Your vision is our mission because we see it too. I want to introduce our next guest, Hector Bravo. He's not only worked in some of America's most violent prisons, he's an Army veteran and has 10 years of sobriety. He also has a badass YouTube channel, That Prison Guard. Without further ado, Hector Bravo, man. How are you doing this morning? Good, dude. How about yourself? Ah, good, man. Woke up and uh, was a little chilly in San Diego, so... Freezing. You know, uh, but that warm cup of coffee really helped out, so... <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, you're a coffee drinker, right? Big time, dude. Yeah? What was, What's your favorite kind of coffee? Uh, Red, white, and brew, my man. A red, red. Oh man, thank thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I'm I'm really partial to coffee, you know. I mean, obviously. But uh, you know what happened was Starbucks, man. Starbucks really changed the way I, I drank coffee. And uh yeah. you knew a crappy cup of coffee when you got one because it had exactly. Starbucks logo on it. But yep. um man, absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Uh so tell me a little about yourself, man. What what's your morning routine like? Oh, dude, I wake up at um, three in the morning, three in the morning. I brew, brew my coffee, right? First thing, I probably take a piss in the morning. Between the coffee and the piss, it's either or, you know, how full the, how full the bladder is. And uh, yeah, dude, I, lately, the whole freaking 12 cup pot, man, just for myself, just because I've been grinding a lot throughout the day. And uh, do you drink the 12 cups throughout the day? Or are you like first half of the day? First half of the day. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was about to say, or you just swallow that before 6 a.m. Like first half of the day. Before noon for sure, man. Y- yeah. I mean, I am I'm with you, man. When I get up, it's it's usually do the ninja roll out of bed, step on the dog, yeah. you know, yeah. trip over the dog, and then you know, take that morning piss. And then it's like, all right, I have to make it to the coffee pot. Plus, my wife started tapping into it. I used to do like 10 cups for myself, and then she started tapping into my stuff, so I had to do the 12 for her. Man, talk about, you know, that's compromise, you know? You're like, okay, fine, yeah, I'll know. give you the two ounces, just leave yeah. me the tin. <laughs> right. Or the two cups, leave me the tin. Cups, cups, cups. Yeah. Oh, don't so, worry. So, yeah, dude. I'll um, fuck this all up. It's all good. So, like, yeah, wake up, started, I'm, you know, I got my YouTube channel going on, so start cranking out content, start reaching back out to the fans, a uh, lot of commenting back, checking the emails, touching bases with uh, clients and stuff like that. So we hit the first thing in the morning, man. It's fucking business. First thing, dude. First thing in the morning business, man. You don't even get pleasure. I mean, like that's, that's. Well, the coffee is a pleasure, but. That is is true, man. (laughs) I I can't start my morning without it. Now I have tried and I have. Oh, hell no. And, and those are real struggling days. Yeah. Without that brown, sweet fucking nectar, man. For I mean, sure. You know, it usually it's like, okay, now I'm going to, I need some meth maybe 
to maybe it, keep me going through the day because it's funny you should mention that because i was gonna like say hey later on we'll talk about why i love coffee so much and then you bring up math and i'm like all right we're going somewhere here we'll take Matt. it in baby steps yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well that escalated quickly listen we don't want to blow our load right here at the beginning right you know I mean? <laughs> that escalated quickly but yeah dude oh shoot man so where'd you grow up uh, Brawley, California, man, small ass town on the way to Glamis. People, most people know where Glamis is out. Those sand dunes, they ride the quads, the, the ATVs. It's like on the border sure. of Mexicali, Mexico. Really? And I'm, I've lived here for 20 years. I don't know where Brawley is. Oh, at. it's in the Imperial Valley, man. Imperial County. You got El Centro. You got Brawley. Gotcha. How was it Middle like of- growing up there, man? Hot, hot. In the summertime, it gets the most was like 127 degrees one summer. It's desert. So, 115, 117 on the reg. Um, small, small towns. A lot of you get in a lot of trouble if you stay there. If sure, if if you got an addictive personality like me, but uh, yeah, a lot of drugs, man. Like I said, it's on the border of Mexico, so those that's coming across. Um, yeah, it's just a pit stop for them, huh? A lot of drinking, right? So there's not not much to do, so you find stuff to do. Well, that's that's the thing when you live in small towns, and this isn't just to a Brawley or a California town. This is towns right. across America. You know, it's like, you got drugs, alcohol, and fucking. I mean, <laughs> drink, fight, fuck, man. That's it. Yep. yep. Drink, fight, fuck. And so it's like, what do you do with that pastime now? What do you, how do you kill that boredom, you know, growing up? And uh, Brawley, I mean, there's a lot of little small towns that are out there, but I mean, Brawley was always turned up pushing the limit on uh you know what i mean so uh, oh you guys set the stage for what's going to happen next oh yeah man it's kind of like one of those rowdy nice man so how was it growing up was you uh single parents or (laughs) no dude believe it or not i actually grew up in a pretty average normal household both parents they didn't divorce they would argue a lot um argue a lot i do remember those arguments of yelling and um my father was a correctional officer at the age when I was like nine years old, he joined the department. I remember that. Ah, oh, that's what I forgot to mention. There's two prisons down there also. So the majority of people will either become a border patrol agent because it's on the border right there or, or work in the prison system because there's two pens right there. Gotcha. And now my mom. Knuckleheads and offsprings who want to cause some ruckus. There you go. There you go, man. Some All in the same family too. I mean, it's that's kind of life in general. So does it, is it normal? And we, is it normal for, you know, growing up there? I mean, Border Patrol, correctional officer, people kind of follow that footsteps in their, in their parents. Is that kind of a. It's a family. It's a family. You can see it in throughout the department. You can see it. It's a family, a lot of siblings, a lot of uh, father, son, mother, daughter combination. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, that's awesome. And maybe not so awesome sometimes, but um, so parents, you know, married, stayed married, still married. Still married, man. Wow. Still married, yeah. Wow, that's a feat, man, especially in this day and age. Like, yeah, shout out to my pops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. We'll we'll make sure we plug him in, you know. <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. So, you had a pretty decent upbringing, you know, pretty blue-collared it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, we weren't rich and we weren't poor. In the beginning, it was pretty <laughs> In the beginning, it was rough, you know. And I had a sister growing up. She was three years younger than me. I mean, I still got three years younger than me. So we kind of got yeah. along all the way. To oh, nice, day. nice. Yeah, because you didn't really have to compete, you know, for much. Because you were yeah. in different little stages of your of your childhood. Yeah, That's it was awesome, cool. Man. It was cool. That's awesome, man. So you went to, uh, so you grew up there. 
what happened after you grew up, man? High school? How was high school? How was um, school? Did you struggle or were you just like an A student? Well, I was a class clown, man. Not by design, just kind of teachers writing on my report card at a very young age. You might want to get this guy checked out for ADD, ADHD. And this is when I was like in third grade. So I, nobody, this was in, I mean, I was born in 1984, man, just to give you an idea. So that's all kind of new. Um, I was a hyper kid, hyper kid, got along with everybody. You know, I was a social, social butterfly, I guess you can say. And, um, small town dude i I didn't play sports i was a skater so oh really yeah is it brawley produced a lot of skaters wasn't there a famous skater out of brawley i don't i don't think brawley the flame famous baseball player sergio romo for the giants all right man i don't know who that is because i'm not a big sports guy yeah i tried to be but man i just don't have the memory for names i hear you i could barely remember my own name i hear you You i blame that on adhd you know, you, you touched on that, man. And man, that is a struggle, especially the 80s, because that's when it really kind of came out. Yeah. And teachers didn't know how to handle us kids with ADHD. You know, so, they're like, how come you can't sit still? So being a, a from Mexican descent, man, my parents were like, oh, you're not going to take medication. You're going to get an ass whooping is what you're going to get. And <laughs> boy, did I get my fair share. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Being, I mean, you know, being from Oklahoma, man, we're. Oh, okay. we're you know, we're not the, the belt is a real thing and so are switches. So <laughs> Yeah, I hear you, know, you, dude. I have felt leather on this ass more times you. than I wish I remember. Yeah. You know, but that's I mean, yeah, that was real. Like correction by, you know, punishment. You know, like, hey, you do wrong, you get punished. It's it's kind of like life. You go rob a bank, you get punished. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I kind of noticed, noticed the correlation when the spankings went away, the kind of crime just uh, <laughs> skyrocketed, man. Yeah. Or when they couldn't really spank your ass anymore because it's immune to it, you know? Oh, <laughs> like, that too. When you laugh, when your dad hits you with the belt and you laugh, he's like, okay, obviously this is not working yeah, anymore. You have graduated to uh, to the next to level. The fist now. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Uh, and I was on the receiving end of one of those and I was like, yep, that's enough. I'm going <laughs> to, I think I know where the line's at and I crossed it that time. So yeah, make sure I don't cross it again. Right. And, uh, man, that's awesome. You know, um, I, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in spanking, you know, now I don't, you know, if one mess up, whatever case, no, not a spanking, Yeah. but you know, I think there has to be some correctional punishment there. I, there has to be, I got a four-year-old daughter. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've only probably spanked her less than a handful of times and not, and just enough to get her attention. Like not even really spankings, man, just enough to get her attention. You're like, Oh, also we live in this day and age right now where like I punished my son in public, you know, because he was acting a fool and would not listen. Yeah. And people were shocked that I spanked his butt. Now they shouldn't be shocked. And I'm like, well, wait, you're just going to let your kid act a fool, you know? And meanwhile, I see these kids just on the floor crying, tantrum. <laughs> and I'm over here like, listen, if you don't do something, I'll do something. Like, <laughs> like, you know, like I know how to stop a tantrum. I can throw Easel, a bigger tantrum. Easily. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, so now, now we, you know, now we are in the society, like, it's taboo if you even say a crossword to your kid in public. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't buy all into that. Like I don't participate in all that. Yeah. My child needs correcting. She's gonna definitely get some correcting. But she's a great, yeah. great daughter. Perfect daughter. Oh yeah. So are my kids. And I, you know, I didn't spank them very often. Yeah. I mean, my oldest son handful of times, maybe. My daughter, shoot, maybe once or twice. Yeah. 
And then my second daughter, my youngest daughter, I'm not sure if I've ever spanked her. Dude, I just she's like she's like a quiet, she's like a she's like a just a a a ghost problem. Like because yeah. she doesn't do anything really like bad, but she's sometimes involved with the drama just by conspiracy. She's just kind of like pitting the drama. Yeah, yeah, I know? get it. And I'm like, I you know, I can't really punish that. Nah. Like, you know, because you're just kind of like playing the sides here. And then them two fight it out <laughs> for sure. Yeah, and then I just, I laugh. And then my, my youngest son, um, he, he hasn't been tested, but I definitely think he has ADHD. I mean, he, he is, he is a spitting image and spitting attitude, just like mine. I'm like, Oh man, there you go. I'm like, you know what, son, it's, it's going to be a struggle, buddy. That's okay though. We're going to, we're going to work through this. So, for sure. all right, man. So you grew up with ADHD or ADD. Um, and, uh, Man, tell me how how was that, and how was your experience with that, with teachers? Well, and- well, it was undiagnosed. You know, what I mean, it was just a suggestion on a report card at a very young age. But uh, now I was very respectful due to my grandparents being older, teaching me manners. You know, it was when I turned fifteen years old, got introduced to alcohol, is when things kind of took a turn. Things took a turn, you know. So, so that's when that first sip of that. Oh, dude. That alcoholic beverage yeah. was uh, your turning point in your life? If I, if I look back, if I reflect back in hindsight, that's kind of when things, that's kind of, plus, you know, teenage, teenage boys, when that testosterone, that puberty, that combination, it, it was, uh, I gave my parents, yeah, I gave my parents a run for their money. I actually got kicked out at the age of 15 or 16 while in high school. Um, my dad gave me the option. He said, Hey, you could stay in our, you could stay under our roof and follow our rules or you can get out and drink with your friends. I was like later and I bounced. Really? Yeah. Did you, so, so you took off at the age 15, Six, 16, it was, 16? It, it was like for sure. My whole senior year of high school. Wow, man. We have a lot of parallels. Man. Do we? Um, oh yeah, dude. I was 17, man. 17. When my dad, he told me, figure your shit out. <laughs> Or get out. <laughs> and I was like, all right. So that journey led me to the Navy recruiter. <laughs> Same here, dude. Same here. But it was the yeah. Army. I'm, yeah. Uh, you know, I would have worked in the family construction business. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I've either quit or been fired five or six times. I was like, you know, this doesn't feel very stable. Right. So, um, wow. So 15, man, you went back. And now what happened at 15? Did you graduate high school? Yeah. So it was like career day. It was like junior year career day. Um a Marine Corps recruiter came in in his spiffy uniforms, uh, talking about going to college, talking about going overseas, talking about everything paid for, and the light bulb went off, dude. Oof! And it's like, I'm, I see it. I'm joining the uh, joining the military for sure. It's my it's my ticket out of here, right? Because if you stay trapped in that small city, you're trapped. And it's like it's my ticket out of here, you know. Um, yeah, you know, that's it's funny that when recruiters come and talk to you, you know, they mention college. And most of the time they're they're not picking, you know, the valedictorians are going to, to the military. You know, it's it's people who are you know, some knuckleheads, man. Yeah. Who, who guys are like, you know what, we need a life transition. You know, and they bring this college up, which I mean grateful they do, but for me, I didn't even graduate high school. Okay. So I didn't give a fuck about college. Like college wasn't even on the radar. When I joined, they're like check this box if you want the GI bill. And I unchecked the box because I was like, well, I'm staying in the military for 20 years and uh, 
you know, get me out of Oklahoma. See you later. And then this lady at the, uh, uh, the boot camp where we're processing in, she's like, Hey, this box is unchecked. And she's like, you should check this box. Cause you're going to need this. I was like, I was like, lady, I didn't graduate high school. What makes you think I'm going to graduate and be able to pass college? That is 10 times harder than high school. You know? And she's like, just do me a favor, check the box. And I was like, you know what? Fine. I'll check that box. And I did. Thankfully. But yeah, go ahead. You, so you went back and uh, so you joined the military, joined the army. Yeah. So I ended up. So wait, wait, why the army? So you have this Marine recruiter come in and you liked his uniform. Why didn't you go in the Marines? So it, I wanted to go infantry. So I knew the Marine Corps had infantry and I knew the army had infantry. Right. Uh, it was Afghanistan. No, Afghanistan had not kicked off yet, as a matter of fact. So this is pre uh, 9 11. So the Twin Towers had not gone down yet. So I go home, I tell my sister, uh, hey, I'm gonna join the army. She, like I said, she's always been my, one of my, if not the most main supporter. She had never told me no, or, oh no, that's probably not a good idea. And uh, she's like, oh, cool. So I went to the Marine recruiting station in El Centro. They're all side by sides. You have all the branches in one same building. And I go in there, I tell the dude, all right, I wanna be, infantry he's like all right take this practice asvab test man i told you ah i had a a gpa of uh 2.0 man see average type of dude i take the pre-asvab i fail it i fail it and i'm like oh my god i'm too dumb to be a marine there's no way right the marine recruiter looks at me he's like hey man go try your luck next door I didn't know what an ASVAB was. I didn't know what a pre-ASVAB was. Dude just tells me, go go try your luck next door with the army. I walk out of there with my head down in shame, you know, like go to the army. I tell the guy, hey, I just failed over here. He's like, don't worry about it, buddy. I mean, you know how they embrace you. And, uh, oh yeah. Just, oh, just yeah. sit down right here. You probably- We got a waiver for you. Probably, yeah, so he's <laughs> like, hey, you passed, man. Congratulations. I was, I was like a recruiter's wet dream, bro young infantry <laughs> i mean the dude didn't have to sell me nothing uh and you already drank the kool-aid man. Oh, yeah and then like boom mind you i was like summer of junior year summer of junior year so delayed entry program i didn't even know it was called a delayed entry program meaning that your contract starts then for your overall contract uh your eight year you know you got to do inactive ready reserve time I'm enlisted, 9-11 happens. So you so you enlisted, so you already were in, went through uh, boot camp. No, 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 I'm, I'm on, on paper, oh, gotcha. I'm enlisted, I've signed, a, I've signed a contract, I'm in the delayed entry gotcha. program. Yeah, you're delayed right. entry program, yep. So this was 2000, 2000, 2000 when you kind of really signed the paper. 2001, I ended up going to yeah. uh, basic training in 2002, July. So the Twin Towers, I'm asleep, my dad wakes me up. So I would periodically bounce back and forth between like being on the go and then coming back, right? I would get too hungry or things would get too tough or whatever. And then I would like bounce again. I was just a pain in the ass, right? So my dad wakes me up, he's like, hey, they're attacking us, Hector, they're attacking us. So first words out of my mouth was, fuck yeah, I'm going to war. My dad was, he was pissed off. He's like, shut the F up. You don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I could see the building smoldering. The the headlines on the bottom were like, um, 
it was saying like you know Al Qaeda. It was saying like possible Osama bin Laden. Whatever it was saying, it was a clear indication that we were going to war. So, yeah, dude, that was 2001. In 2002, July, I, I head off to Fort Benning, Georgia, right after I graduated. So my parents had to sign that waiver, the permission slip. My pops kept trying to talk me out of it. Why don't you go to college? Why don't you go to college? I'm like, Dad, I don't even like high school, let alone college. I barely graduated as well. Oh yeah. yeah, I mean that's a talking point. I mean that is right there, you know, trying to talk us out of it. Oh, you know, wasn't gonna happen. It's like, like wait, go to college and I was sucked at high school. Like, yeah, I'm not sure that's gonna work out. That wasn't gonna happen. So you were. Uh, so September happened, which that was a hell of a fucking day, man. One hell of a day for America. Uh, and for people who uh, were already enlisted and ready to get you know, deployed. You know, we weren't really mindset for that yet. So I remember seeing the Green so, Berets, the Green Berets, the Rangers in Afghanistan. I remember seeing losses that they were taking, you know, killed in action. And that as a young boy, that was a boy, was killing me inside. Like, I, I want to be in the fight. I want to be there. I need to be there. I want missing out. And it's like, I remember feeling that way inside at that time. Well, I wanted to go to war so bad, man, because <laughs> I had not experienced it yet. It, I think we all had that itch. Yeah. You know, until you go there. And, and it, then it's it's a different war when you come back, you know, because it's not like what we think. No, not a, no, it's not. I don't know what I was thinking, man. I don't know. I was I don't know what I was thinking. I, you know, when it happened, I, I was on the USS Nimitz and I was on duty. And uh, we were watching, we're watching TV, and then all of a sudden it popped on. Uh, I think it was called Afies or something mm-hmm. like that, or uh, something. I can't remember the TV show. Um, and uh, it pops on, and I'm like, "What the fuck is happening? Like, we just got hit, you know?" And so we saw that we saw the first one go down, and then the second one, and we are going, "Okay, well, we're going to be in here for a while." We're not leaving. And then we went to whatever, you know, whatever Bravo it right. was. Uh, and, you know, uh, and went to, and we were stuck on the ship for four days. And they weren't even let people on yeah. bases for, for days. And so we were just stuck on there doing duty. And uh, finally, I, about the third day, I was wearing the same pair of underwear. And I was like, well, you know, these things are just getting a little ripe. So I'm going to toss these in the There trash, you go. Man. There you go. <laughs> and so I just had overalls. I didn't even have my other uniforms and nothing like that because I lived in town. So I didn't live on the ship. Um, and then we were getting ready, man. They were like, all right, well, prepare to leave. We're going to uh, New York. You know, so we were like, all right, well, here we go. So you were you were back. So 9-11 happened. You went to boot camp in 2002. And you're like itching, man. You, you, you really need to scratch that itch. And to go to war, man. So you're 11 Bravo? Yeah, 11 Bravo. All right, what's 11 Bravo for people who don't know military? Uh, infantry, dude. You go in as an 11 X-ray. So you can, in essence, be an 11 Charlie, a mortarman, the people that hang in the back with the mortars. And uh, they were getting a lot of action in Iraq, too, going out on patrols, kicking in doors. But that's what an 11 Charlie does, mortars. 11 Bravo is your ground pounders, yeah, your door, door kickers. kickers. Yeah, man. You know, pipe hitters, man. So, yeah. yeah, so you went in there and tell me about, uh, you know, so tell me about that, man. So tell me about your first, your first tour. 
Uh, first tour was in Iraq 2004. They had already captured Saddam Hussein. They had already did the invasion, the shock and awe. So in my, our minds, we thought the war was over. We thought, hey, this is, we missed our opportunity. This sucks, right? We were wrong. We were wrong. That was the beginning of the insurgency. Yeah, 100%. You, know, you that take was, down one and somebody else was going to come in here and try to fill the void. You know, that, little did we know. Yeah. That was Operation Iraqi Freedom 2, OIF 2. Um, landed in Kuwait, trained, trained there for a month before our what push. What did you do in Kuwait? Oh, dude, man. It was like living It was like living in Glamis. Bunch of sand dunes, like sand. Like you couldn't even see like the horizon. You couldn't see anything. Tents, um, portajons. The showers, if any, they were very limited. Definitely cold water. Nothing like. Training, li live firing range trainings. Really? So, but they didn't do that here in the States? Like, I was they stationed, didn't do that at what, Fort Jackson in North Carolina, is it? I was stationed in Germany. I was with the 1st Infantry Division. Big oh, Red gotcha. One. Gotcha. Okay. So that makes that makes more sense. You know, because they're not going to fly you to, you know, North Carolina to do the training and all that good stuff. My contract actually worked out perfect, dude, because I enlisted in a three-year contract. They actually had that. They actually had that then. Like a lot of people didn't know that or whatever. So I trained extremely hard for two years, deployed for one, and then I got out. Well, deployed for 13 months. Yeah. Oh, then you did the one tour and out, huh? Thank God I only signed up for three years because my buddies had all signed up for four years. They all got stop lost. They all got stop lost. They had to go back to Baghdad for 18 more months. So there was a lot of stop movement, stop loss. And hell no. <laughs> I was yeah. done. I was done. So you so you had this you had this really vivid dream of like, man, it's my time, man. I was built for this. You know, and then you went there and you were like, Man, I'm not sure I want to continue this because this is uh the beginning, like the mindset started changing. Things that things that stand out to me was the push from Kuwait to to the center of Iraq. I was in Balad, which is right in the middle of the Sunni Triangle, right in between Tikrit. Uh, Fallujah and Baghdad right in the middle um, I remember seeing like the faces of the locals looking at us with like hate uh, you can tell when somebody hates you <laughs> and I, that caught me off guard like hey these people are not thrilled some were waving the others were you know flipping to the, the bird but uh, you could tell them they're f and I'm like oh man uh, a lot of major incidents that transpired throughout the deployment one of the ones that stand out to me that kind of changed the game and the dynamics was May 12th, 2004. Uh, I got hit by a roadside bomb. We were out on patrol. The IED blew up right next to my Humvee. It wasn't even an up-armored Humvee. That's another thing, dude. 2004, we were not rolling around in up-armored Humvees or anything like that. Yeah, MRAPs weren't even a thing. Nope. Stri uh, I think strikers may have barely, barely came on board in other units, but um, I said we were mechanized, so we had Bradleys, but my platoon got detached and attached to tankers r one month before the deployment. The army was trying all kinds of weird stuff, man. They made a they made a company of of one platoon of engineers, combat engineers, one platoon of infantry. One platoon of tankers and one platoon of National Guard. It's like, what? But, 
they no, use they okay. use and abused us so they use and abused the the engineers and us big time the tankers sure. did so oh, really so oh, tell yeah. me like how how did how did the tankers like ab- abuse you it's like hey guys, well they would up. be playing like xbox while we would be out patrolling um we i mean we were doing it all patrols QRF, quick reaction force, raids at night, uh, guard on the post, on the FOB, FOB, Palawada, guards on the detainees and targets that we were bringing back from, from the raids, route clearance, convoys. I mean, we were doing all of this 24-7, 365. Yeah, you know, one of those things that really, really scare the shit. I mean, all that does, really. Uh, <laughs> I mean, no, it, 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 it's scary. You know, now I look back, you know, through my experiences and I'm like, man, thank God, you know, I didn't get, you know, blown up or hit by an IED, but, um, route clearances, you know, people don't understand, like there's this big vehicle that has this little tractor thing attached to the front of it. And your purpose is to roll over IEDs to blow them up. Like, wow, that's a job in the military that somebody signs up for. And it's usually what an engineer or something of that sort, yeah. you know, that's, that's manning those, those, uh, wh- whatever they're called. I don't, I don't know what they're called. I didn't, you know, I was not transport. So, or route clearance, but, um, you know, that's a super, super, super dangerous job, you know, and just, you know, hearing somebody and hearing people go through that, it just back of my hair, the hair on the back of my neck just raises up and I'm just like, Hmm. Like I couldn't imagine because I've seen a lot of it. I've seen a lot of them blow up. But so you did route clearance. You did all these sorts of jobs. You were abused and abused, you know, kind of slapping around like, no, we want to sit here and play Xbox. You need to go out there and do some route clearance or go knock on these doors. So, yeah, dude, like on those route, like we were actually walking on the side of the roads, walking on the side of the roads in front of the Humvees to look for IEDs. Yeah, it was just wild, man. It was just it was That's wild. how they cleared IEDs in two thousand guys walking in, two, in front of them in two thousand four till uh, till we got smart. It, you know, you get salty, you get you start just stop caring, right? Uh, sometimes at gunpoint, we would stop Iraqi vehicles, have those civilians get out and start kicking boxes on the side of the road because it's like, wow. hey, this is your country. You you yeah. you go get blown up. But like I said, that that comes with time and experience, like sure. um. Let's get back to that, the ID, when you got hit with the ID. So, yeah, the, the ID itself didn't change me. The, the, the explosion, right? It, it was, man, it was, it was loud. It was so loud that it wasn't loud, if that makes any sense. It was like, bah! right, because we were in the blast, black smoke, debris. Um, the windshield got blown out. The tires got flat. My buddy Waylon was in the back on the 240. He goes down. And then he got, I think he went down from like the concussion, the blast, because there was a little slot in from, from where I was driving to back there. I look back, I don't see him. I'm like, Waylon, Waylon. I'm coasting because I don't even know what happened. I, I assume we just got a flat tire. So my sergeant is yelling at me, stop, stop the fucking Humvee. We just got hit. And I'm like, slow motion now. Like, we just got hit. We just got hit coasting. And then I hear Waylon open up with the 240. <laughs> That's another thing. The SOP back then was you open up 360 degrees when you get hit by an IED. Everybody. Yeah. The Wild Wild yeah. West. 
Um, well, yeah, because you don't know what's happening next. You don't know what happened. You don't know if it's an RPG. You don't know if it's a mortar at the time, right? You're still assessing the damage that just happened. That, it was new. They would eventually change that, but they would follow up, you know, um, ambushes, like, what's that word I'm looking for? Like, not unique ambushes, but like where where, you, where they'll follow up, they'll hit you with IED, then they'll start shooting at you. And it's like different layers to it. Um yeah, they compounded the attack. Stuff you know, like that. First, they want to take out. They want to take out a lead vehicle, stop the convoy, right? Yeah. And then, and then they start really hammering down on the attack, and really from all sides, man, they're hitting you with small arms to the, you know the RPGs. And- so that's why we would open it up in three in in three hundred sixty degrees on that one. So the IED. So I hear gunfire pop pop because it was a. I go around the curve in the road, right? I hear I hear M16s firing. I kind of start walking, making my way that way. And one of my sergeants comes and he's like, hey, Farrell, I beat, I beat your record. What he was referring to me was that, cause I had April, May, this was May, April 15th. I had shot somebody. I shot a dude, the dude was far, extremely far, like probably like 250 meters, maybe 300 meters away. We were, we were both running. We were both, it, it was, kind of impressive you look back anyhow he was reflecting he was referring to that i beat your record i'm like what do you mean because i didn't know what had just i couldn't see i didn't know what was happening behind that curve and he's like i just shot somebody farther than you did and i'm like i'm like what you guys shot somebody right because i'm like everything's kind of moving the way it's moving yeah yeah and and, and paint the scene real quick you're not saying you're in some field or open oh Thing. This is urban. No, no, no. This was not yeah. urban. When I would, oh, was I it? was in Balad. It was very agricultural. It was very agricultural. Okay. So you had, um, I apologize for that. You had date vines. You had watermelon fields. Those date trees. I meant mm-hmm. to say grape vines. A lot of everything agricultural. Green. It was green where I was at. Fields. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So is it even scarier sometimes. Well, you got those houses out in the, you know, out sporadically. Uh, villages are what they were really and that's kind of the area it was a bad bad area checkpoint 27 we always always got hit when we went by checkpoint 27 that was it and that was early on so as a matter of fact one week prior to that my buddies had gotten hit up we would alternate patrols so that's it was just a really bad location man so they're shooting into the fields right open fields there's wood lines like like brush so i couldn't see because they were around um a bend in the road with like bushes or trees that was blocking it so he tells me we just i just shot somebody so now i see a white truck man and I see the door open from the driver's side. I see some fat Iraqi fall out of the driver's side into the street, wearing a man dress. I see two little kids jump out of the truck and I'm like, oh my God, what like, and they lit this truck up. You know, the truck was leaving the scene of where the IED detonated when, when it detonated. That's why they lit it up. I see a passenger get out of, um, an adult male get out Pick the fat dude up, put him in the bed of the truck. They are looking at us like they want us to help that guy. Somebody saw another IED that did not detonate, a secondary IED that did not detonate 
right there next to the other one. So we're like, so there was two two IDs stacked next to each other. They would sometimes daisy chain. That one was not a daisy yeah. chain, but it was just two IDs, two different IDs that they had planted. One blue, the other one didn't. So they're like, um, we're yelling, hey, I don't even know if they knew English or whatnot. Hey, you bring them to us. We're, we're not going over there. You bring them to us. They kind of gather, they throw the fat dude in there. The guy gets in the driver's seat, turns the truck around and starts bringing them to us, right? I was 19 years old, man. This is where I told you that my mindset of war, this is when it got weird, like real. These two kids, these two boys, little boys, they were like nine years old, maybe like six years old. Man, they pull the truck up right there. The guy is shot. He's shot. He's acting like he's shot, but there's zero blood. Zero blood at all. Nothing. So, right, kind of like... I'm not going to say this was the first person. This is the first time I saw a gunshot because I told you what had happened that month prior and a couple other little skirmishes or whatever. So we're like, this is weird. The kids are freaking out. Free. They, that was the, the sons. That was the sons of that individual that was shot. We look in the back of the man dress. There's a little a little tear in his dress. We the, the medic kind of opens it up. Yeah, you see, man, it's like a little shank, like. Uh, like if somebody stabbed you really small, I think they hit the dude with a tracer, so it cauterized that wound. It was five, five, six. Um, no exit wound. Probably bounced around all over inside of him, and he was just spitting up blood and spitting up pieces of, of, of stuff, right in front of his children. They are wailing, screaming. I have a water bottle in my hand. I offer to give it to the kid because I don't know what to do, man. They knock it out of my hand, like you know violently and like i'm like oh man like it, the fuck that shit in boot camp you know well this is that's what i'm saying is like this it got real like uh so the dad is saying stuff in arabic and then going out right unconscious waking up saying stuff going out unconscious every time he's doing that these kids are just freaking out even more finally he dies he dies right then and there he dies in the bed of the truck defecated on himself right and they don't i mean this is this is war like and i remember thinking like i didn't anticipate this this wasn't in the cards so the the individual was barefooted get in the back he was dead barefoot in the back of the um the white truck the remainder of my platoon my patrol followed the copper wire so the way that they would detonate the ids that they would get artillery rounds 155 rounds one or two of them they would hook up a nine volt battery with a blasting cap in there with a with a wire copper wire thin thin copper wire they would string it out this was a command dated id string it out 100 yards 200 yards and wait there till you drove by then they would touch you with a nine volt and blow your ass up well there was a pair of sandals left at that wire um my sergeant gets those sandals, comes back to the dead body, and puts it on his feet. Boom. It's like a perfect fit. So then I'm like, what the hell? Like, why would that dude do that? Like, why? Like, it, like I said, man, war. <laughs> they show that shit on Black Hawk Down, or we were soldiers, man. That's uh, it's difficult to process. 
You know what I mean? When it becomes so real like that, so quick, you know, you you just had this guy who tried to kill you. Literally. And now you have a job to try to save his life. Yeah, I think the worst part, I think the worst part was having the watch the kids watching their dad die. I don't think sure. I don't I don't think it would have been. Had we just killed a guy who tried to kill us, that, that that's cut and dry. That's black and white. This was gray. This was extremely gray. Yeah, because you didn't know if it was really him or not, right? That also until you know it did make us feel better. It made us feel at peace when those, when that sandals fit his feet. Yeah. So that sergeant knew what the fuck he was doing. He was just like, "Listen, I've seen this a time or two, man. <laughs> if the shoe fits, literally, you know, like that, you know, and that's that's stuff that people don't understand that you process." You know, when you're going through war, it's not just about, you know, uh, the people that died on our side. It's about the people who also were responsible for killing. Yeah, and there was a lot so, of killing back then. And then... Uh, no, absolutely. The other the other worst the worst day of my life was... Happened to fall on my mom's birthday. September 10, 2004, our medic got killed when we were out on patrol together. And that sucked bad. Yeah. How did he, uh, if, you, if you want to tell, how did he? So that was September. KIA. That was September 10, 2004. Like I said, it was 13 month deployment. So it was just constant, constant, never let up, right? And people don't understand that, oh, 13 months, it, that is a long deployment of continual combat and continual combat stress. Yeah, you're not safe. Difficult. You're not safe outside of the wire, and you're not safe on the fob because of indirect mortar fire and rocket fire and car bombs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and also you know people who are we bring into the fob to work. Yeah, that too. You know, is I mean, it's not a safe environment. We're not over there, you know, singing, singing kumbaya and drinking beer. There's no. Nah. There, there's none of that. You're always on that work. You're in that state of mind the whole time you're on that deployment. So you're, so you're doc guy. So yeah, dude, we were asleep in the morning time. Part of our job, a quick reaction force QRF was to go to the point of origin. So I mentioned our camp would get mortared. We had this cool little um, satellite thing that would track the trajectory of the round and give us the point of origin of where that round came from. So we would always go out to there and, and investigate. By then they were long gone. But it did not take long for the Iraqi insurgents to catch on to our our tactics and well they set us up. You know, they set us up. They they planted an IED at that scene and so at seven in the morning, they're like, Hector, Hector, wake up. And they probably call me by my last name, Farrell, wake up. We just got mortared. Which was weird because I didn't even hear it. I didn't hear the incoming, I didn't hear nothing, right? It was not that's not unrealistic because you get used to it, right? So I'm groggy. It, right off the bat, that was that day was weird. That morning was weird right off the bat. Groggy. Everybody's kind of slow fucking it, putting on their gear, putting on their helmet. We load the Humvees. We uh, pass by the by the main gate. My friend Maldonado from Puerto Rico, he's working the gate. He kind of just looks at us and we look at him, which is so weird because normally we would be like, hey, what's up? Or So... Four vehicles, right? We traveled in four vehicles. One of them was a 113 armored personnel carrier. Straight Vietnam era box looking, you know, on tracks. The other three were Humvees. 
So I, I'm familiar with where this location is because this was our se sector, our patrol area of patrol, right? So we come up to a T intersection. There's four of and we hear over the radio that the last vehicle had broken down like a mile away, which is kind of weird because we didn't really spot that or know it. So I was like third in line. So the lieutenant at the time made the decision to send our vehicle back, link up with that one. Right. We were right around the corner from down the road from the point of origin. I didn't know what their plan was. I was assuming they were going <clears> to <throat> they were going to stay there, but I, I didn't know. Right. So we go back. So now I'm linked up with the with the, the vehicle and I hear a loud, loud thunderous explosion. The loudest freaking like crazy thing about it it just kept rumbling like forever man it kind of like looking it's like a soul left this world which in reality it did it was like it was so loud so loud that my friends thought they were taking on back on the fob that they thought they were taking indirect fire it was followed by gunfire so we're like what the fuck hey they're getting attacked they're getting Mind you, I didn't know that those two vehicles were going to go on ahead, right? So, like, that's so they what they ended up doing. continuing on with the mission. They continued going mission. to recover that vehicle. Yes. So we hear that loud fucking... So, right, it's your mind is just trying to play catch-up. Like, what is? what are these sounds? And why is this happening? So you kind of put two together. Fuck. They went fucking... They went without us. Not that it's a bad choice, right? I'm never going to blame a lieutenant for that. that. That's just a decision made, like, on the spot. Um. So, you hear gunfire, like, and I'm like, "Oh fuck! Hey, let's go! Let's go! Let's go! They're getting attacked! Let's go!" So finally, we jump in the Humvees. I know a shortcut through this dirt road. I see a Humvee in the middle of the street. Like I told you, it was like countryside, like 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 agriculture still, but this was flat fields, and it was right on the Tigris, Tigris River. The Tigris, are you afraid? Pretty sure it was the Tigris River, dude. And so, as soon as I jump out of the Humvee, Sergeant Egger looks at me and he said, they killed Doc. And I'm like, what do you mean they killed Doc? And he's like, look at him. He's right over there on the road. And I looked. And I looked past Sergeant Egger and I see a body in the road. My whole fucking world went like tunnel vision, dark, like, man. And it just felt, it felt like a nightmare that was not a nightmare, right? You know, you have those nightmares that are so scary as hell and you wake up and you're like, thank God that was just a nightmare. Well, this was, this was real life. My innocence, I know for a fact my innocence left me at that exact moment. I run over to the body. I don't know why. I think I had to verify. I think I had to verify that this was actually true, right? Because I was in shock. I look down. I see, I see his face has speckles of blood on it. Spreck like, but I, the face, I didn't, it didn't look like Doc to me. Not that his face was injured at all. It just didn't look like Doc to me. 
uh, Edgar Daklon. He was from Torrance. We used to party a lot together. He was a great guy. He was Filipino. You know, he used to work at GNC. He was buff. Like, a, I love this dude like a brother, man. You know, in the army, you kind of have certain crews that you hang out with, certain people you hang out with more than others. And he was definitely within our our circle, our small circle, right? So I look, his leg was, his leg was in fact injured. So I realized like, yeah, I start hearing more gunfire. I'm like, fuck man. It's one of those things like training, right? Training, training kicks in. There's still a job that has to be done. Like, hey, this isn't game over. This is just beginning, right? So I turn back, there's a Humvee. My buddy O'Neill is screaming out in pain, in agony. I got my, my buddy Hinks bandaging his head. He took shrapnel right to the back of the Kevlar, right to the back of the helmet. He was up in the gun post. So what ended up happening, man, since that, those two vehicles went forward, they stopped right next to that IED. That IED was buried above ground, above ground with dirt, with dirt on a dirt mound right so that's the that's part that's the most dangerous you can get because you're going to get all that blast there was a, a canal bank that haji that iraqi insurgent was tr traced that wire and you he had a clear line of sight to that humvee when my buddy D doc daklon he was like a grunt to us man he was an 11 bravo to us right straight infantry because he was always leading he was always kicking indoors he was shooting with the best of us and that's actually what happened. He was the first one out, stood in front of the Humvee, and it detonated, boom. Blew him across the road. And then that's when we had showed up. Well, my buddy O'Neill was up in the gun. His back was to that IED. So the shrapnel penetrated his Kevlar and gave him kind of like brain damage, you know, penetrated his skull for sure. He's getting bandaged up. Our Lieutenant, he took shrapnel to the bottom of his foot because the, the you know shrapnel was burning hot through the everywhere and it, it, it hit the bottom of his foot because i could see him sitting in the passenger seat of the humvee holding his knee up and the bottom of his feet looked like um like uh, ground beef right the boot is like like torn right and then there's like ground beef on the bottom of his foot so i'm like fuck. so doc's dead the lieutenant seems to be chilling with his messed up foot, right? Like not in harm's way. Hinks is bandaging up O'Neill. Now, fuck, we have cars coming down the road. And they start yelling, Farrell, Farrell, we have fucking cars coming. So I'm like, fuck. So I come around. I stand in the middle of the road with my M16. We had M16s back in the day. And I start firing warning shots because I didn't want them to come and see the body and i didn't know they were car bombs like i did told you they would do secondary or um other yeah, attacks secondary attacks and and that had just started around the the car bomb time frame when they started hitting us with car bombs so the first car turns around second car starts coming with a white truck i start shooting above the above it warning shots nothing it's coming closer i shoot at the ground street nothing man I shoot at the passenger side window because I see the windshield because I see there's nobody sitting there. Nothing. It's still coming. I'm like, I'm going to have to kill this fucking dude. I'm going to have to fucking kill this dude. Like, I didn't want to. I didn't want to. I had already done stuff like this in the past. 
on that deployment it, i did not like the feeling it gave me plus it's one of those things i don't know if this is a bad guy or not he's simply just coming down the street right by then he was up on us it was an old ass dude we break the window we pull him out kind of rough him up a little bit he was old he must have been like 80 or 90. We, wow that's fucking old well that's probably what explains why he kept driving towards us while i'm shooting at this guy in his vehicle he just kept driving along that's just another sunday in iraq <laughs> pretty much man so he gets thrown in the in the truck he turns around he drives off right so like my innocence left me that day i had to throw the smoke for the uh medevac to come the medevac came i looked down there's somebody somebody had thrown up on the ground come to find out my buddy uh o'neill told me he thinks he's the one that threw up you know because of his head wound and stuff like that um load the bodies onto stretchers uh and on uh you know those gurneys and put them into the uh the stokes litters and put them into the helicopter the medevac and we had to uh tow we had to tow that one vehicle back to base because the tires were all flattened and you know you see these iraqi children men and women on the side of the road and the puddle of blood that was left for my friend on that street i don't know i've never talked about this like publicly but the pub puddle of blood was the darkest thickest blood i had ever 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 seen in my entire life and it just i remember a sergeant running over there and just trying to cover up the, the blood with dirt like just out of respect or just out just i mean man we were just trying to like erase that that incident never there right and the hate that built inside of my heart for those iraqi people actual hate rage it was flowing through my 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 veins it was poison toxic that's crazy that you i mean that a lot of people we go through these experiences right through war you know but to actually reflect on that and go mm, this isn't good is 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 gnarly but did you did you reflect on that right then or did you process that after you got out or was that like after you got off deployment and that's when the real war started happening everything i just told you right now i was able to tell you without breaking down and crying is because i've sought the therapy i've got the sobriety under my belt i learned a lot yeah the worst part was was The worst part was experiencing all that and, and not knowing how it was going to affect me. You know, so, yeah. I didn't know jack shit, dude. Um, so, yeah, dude, you're a great question. And, you know, great question. And um, that was the worst part, bro. Ain't nobody going to tell you about anxiety. Ain't nobody going to tell you about post-traumatic like um sur survivor's guilt survivor's guilt man <laughs> i had to do a, a therapy research at the va and i talked about that specific incident you know so yeah you know, dude that's you know 
that's something that's not very uh, sought on. You know. Well, you got to think, man. And, we were back on patrol that following day. You know, I I want to thank you just so much for coming on here and 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 sharing sharing that story because that that takes a lot of courage to sit here and talk about and open up doors that we have closed for a long time, dude. I I thank you, dude, for for sharing that that piece of your life with me. Um, I, I can't thank you enough, man, and I can't thank you enough for you know what you did for us over there in Iraq. Yeah, thank you, dude. Like when you invited me on this podcast, I'm like, this is gonna be good because my whole sole mission now is to help other people help other people like what I went through, what you went through. And I'm not talking about like the actual war there. That in itself is what you got to do what you got to do. I'm talking about the war when you get back, the mental health war. Yep. It's definitely real, definitely. man. It almost killed me numerous times. Well, I, I'm, we're going to, I think we probably should take a break. For sure, dude. All right. <clears throat> so... Man, we just hear, we just heard, you know, war is fucking hell, man. But the real war, I think it's about to begin. You know, so you get off a of deployment. You experience these losses, these traumatic events. What happens, man? You decide not to stay in the army. When does your war begin? Uh, this was 2005. There was no wounded warrior project. There was no, at least to my knowledge at that time. There was no uh, mental health um, advocacy or anything like that. Plus, it was actually like the uh, frowned upon to to even say you had an issue or, you know, admit that anything was wrong with you. It's kind of something that we hid and or I self-medicated. So my my it all began when I touched back at Germany, man, my drinking, my drinking. I told you I'm an alcoholic. First and foremost, I am an alcoholic, right? That is also something that I learned after the fact. To me, it was just like, oh, I'm making up for lost time. That's what I would tell people. I was in Iraq for a year. I didn't get to drink. I'm making up for lost time. So I have to go extra hard. That's what I would say. Well, extra hard was a fifth of vodka a night. And when a fifth of vodka wasn't cutting it, I would add a 12 pack of Coronas to that. I was only weighing a buck 45 at that time. Man. I was 20 years old. Yeah, you weren't even old enough to drink, man. Well, I guess in Germany nah, you could, though. Germany, Germany. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, alcoholism got to the point, man, where I didn't know if I was asleep or awake. You know, I didn't know if it, meaning, I didn't know, damn, well, did that actually happen last night or was that a dream? Because it was just a blackout blur. Sure. The whole, the whole mixture thingy. <laughs> And it, I was kind of getting away with it because it, I, everybody knew that I was getting out. A lot of people were getting out at that time. So, the, oh, dude, the fact that they disbanded our platoon, second platoon, and sent us to the tankers, we were like the stepchildren. Man, you had dudes smoking weed in the barracks, not caring. They, We were just out of control. Was this like they were just trying to get the fuck out and doing anything and everything they can or just... You know, after or they just didn't give a fuck. Like they, they just stopped. Fuck. They just stopped thinking about their life, and they're like, "Yeah, I don't give a fuck, man. I'm on borrowed time anyway." They didn't give a fuck because it's like a lot of resentment. They, hey, you guys kicked us to the wolves, threw us to the wolves, and uh, the rest of our company 
went to Tikrit, Iraq, Saddam's hometown, they were getting hit by small arms, small arms, small arms fires, RPGs, and a, and a couple roadside bombs here and there. And I know this because they told me, and we were strictly getting hit with roadside bombs and car bombs. So you you came home sort of self-medicating and going down, really just down this path of destruction. And Yeah, dude, and back to Brawley. Back to Brawley. Actually, so back went, to El Centro. Oh, so you went, you came back to El Centro or Brawley. Because, because my parents, while I was in Iraq, I, I had moved from Brawley to El Centro. Well, they're all within 15 miles, but yeah, back straight there, Imperial Valley. And what that looked like, man, what that looked like was isolating in my room all day long, all day, drinking alcohol, right? And it would eventually progress to drugs, man. But alcohol, and then at nighttime, I would go out to party. That's when I would really hit it hard, man. Alcohol, drugs, like sleeping around with different girls, like drinking and driving. Like, I never... I never attempted to take my own life on purpose, right? But believe me, I was doing anything and everything to make it end through my actions. If that makes any sense. Sure. You threw you threw safety out the window. You're like, you know what? I'm going to go get fucking loaded. I'm going to go do drugs. I'm going to go drinking. And I'm going to get in this fucking car. If I happen to crash and I die, oh fucking well. So be it. It wasn't even so be it. It was like, good, good good it would be over because 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 it was taking its toll around every all my loved ones uh my parents they were watching me i mean i would eventually get kicked out of my house again uh, i would land myself in jail i would uh it Wait, was hold on. so you went to jail how did, what? and what happened like how did you what led you to jail what action so during that time, man, I was just saying, I was hitting the alcohol and just self-medicating. I was self-medicating extremely bad, bro. Pro, uh, undiagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, it, and that was back in the day when it was not, it was not even known. People don't come out. People don't understand. The military doesn't teach you kumbaya and talk about your feelings. The military teaches you shut up, suck it up, keep going, and the mission next. That's what the military teaches you. They don't teach you like, hey, let's talk about the loss of life or the traumatic events that's happened on deployment. You know, um, they didn't, there was not none of that around. Matter of fact, it, what you touch base with a little bit ago, if you talk about it, you probably just put your career at jeopardy. That too. And I was, you got, as crazy as what I'm saying right now, my goal was to become a correctional officer. My goal was to join law enforcement, maybe even a police agency right because i didn't feel like i was a criminal and listen my mindset was not i'm a criminal like i'm not over here breaking into homes i'm not over here robbing people i am just getting drunk getting high uh smashing women right like it's just living it up i'm 20 years old why wouldn't i yeah you try to fill that void man Right, other 20 year olds were doing the practically the same thing but ain't nobody was doing it on the level that i was I was it was self-destructive extremely self-destructive so how so you you landed in jail what landed you in jail so during that period of time i was living at my cousin's house it was a straight tweaker pad man people on meth like it's the truth dude it was uh 
that's where I was. I made it to the bottom. I made it to the bottom. The crazy thing is, that wasn't even my bottom. That was just on the way down. Uh, so yeah, dude, a lot of so. I was with some friends. We were drinking. We were doing drugs. We ran out of alcohol. Went to go do a beer run, 7-Eleven right down the street. We go do a beer run right in front of a CHP officer. He sees us. He sees my friend running out of the store. Pulls us over immediately. Right, like pulls us over. I'm in the back seat. I'm thinking, hey, I'm in the back seat. I'm good. Right, I'm in the back seat. What am I guilty of? But I didn't know any. I was 20 years old, man. I'm thinking it's a beer run. They're gonna let us. They're gonna cut us loose. Why wouldn't they? This happened to be on a on a Friday. We go to jail. They in process us. We go to jail. General population, gang members. Oh, we're in jail, right? Uh, the dude that I'm with, his cousin, so happened to be the shot caller of the area we were in. So it kind of worked out in our benefit, right? Um, I'm not a gang member. I have no ties to gangs. Never been in one, had no so inclination to be in one, but I'm just there because of my actions, right? Accountability, because of my actions, I landed myself here. So... Yeah, I got to do what they got to do, right? If not, they're going to beat you up. That's kind of what they do in jail. <laughs> um, so I get out. And when I get out, I get that examination to go take that test, the letter to go take the test for California Department of Corrections. So I go take the test and I pass, dude. So once I pass, common sense told me to stop doing drugs, right? Because... I told you that when we got back from Iraq, a lot of the dudes were smoking weed in the barracks. Well, I wasn't smoking weed in the barracks because I wanted a job in law enforcement. I didn't want to piss hot. I didn't want to get a dirty piss test. Those dudes all got dirty piss tests and got demoted. But when I got out of the army, I'm kind of like, oh, I'm free to do. I'm, I'm wilding out right now. You know, post-traumatic stress disorder is what the hell that was. Combined with alcoholism, it was extremely dangerous, man. You know, so then I become a... Uh, CO dude in the background investigator like, hey what the hell <laughs> says right here you were in jail one month ago because I disclosed it if not you're like omitting and I'm like oh yeah about that sir like uh you know hanging with the wrong crowd just came back from the army which I did just come back from the army and I kind of was hanging with the wrong crowd uh he's like all right man I'll give you a chance the dude gave me a chance eventually wow. I would yeah yeah so Wow, that one little action what could have derailed your whole life. That one moment could have derailed your whole life, you know, and changed the course of action for whatever. You have no idea. Probably down the wrong road because then you would probably have got home self-medicated. So you got the correctional officer job. You know, now you're like stoked, I imagine. You're like, okay, wow, now, now I have another purpose. You stoked. But... <clears throat> still drinking alcohol and still suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. So I was able to, I was able to, to, man, I was able to get through for like up to three years. Like, well, I did get a DUI in 2009. So I got a DUI while employed with the department as a young officer. Back then, 
the rules were very, very like minimal, like, man, just a little slap on the wrist. Like, hey, don't do that again. I got a one day suspension, right? So DUIs and law enforcement are not abnormal. Right. But for me at that time, there was way more to it. Yeah, my, my, my mind was destroyed, bro. Like, um, so that shook you up pretty good. No, not at all. The DUI didn't shake me up. Not one bit. That's the thing. I had been, I had been, so that was the second time I went to jail. I went to jail for that. And, uh, in 2010, I totaled my truck. I totaled my truck freaking destroyed man my tundra that i bought i bought that shit when i came back from iraq as my gift to myself man freaking totaled it i'm surprised i didn't die then i have used up all my nine lives and then some man i wasn't like knocking on death's door i was kicking them like kicking that door in right because of my mindset my mind was you know i wasn't bad i was sick right and i learned this in in alcoholics anonymous but yeah, I wasn't a bad person. I was a sick person because I had not addressed those issues. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, mean, I told you that my sister backed me from the start, right? She, she backed me. She always supported me. She, she picks me up and she tells me, Hey, Hector, enough is enough. You got to get help. And when she said that it read, it's something like it clicked. I knew that for my sister to say that something had to be terribly wrong, right? That everybody was looking for me, man. Like, you know, my job was looking for me. My dad picks, my dad is like, I'm fucking done with you. I am done with you. I am going to drive you from, from El Centro to San Diego to the VA hospital. I'm going to drop your ass off there and you're never going to call me again. You're never going to call me again. I'm not your dad. You're never going to fucking hear from us again. That's when my bottom, that's, that's now, now I'm sinking. Now I'm about to hit my bottom because of how I felt. Dude, I was on my hands and knees crying, crying in my parents' living room, begging God, why can't I just die? Why can't I just die? Because I totaled that truck going 80 miles per hour and I didn't die. I'm like, this has to be some kind of foot curse from hell. The fact that I've endured all this stuff, all this stuff, and I can't die because I, I, did, I didn't like, I wasn't thrilled that I had survived Iraq when my friends had died over there. I was not thrilled in the slightest. I wished I could trade places with those dudes. I prayed to God that I could trade places with those guys. And um, that was my mindset. That was my feelings. So we, oh, I had a fiance too. She's my current wife, man. I was supposed to be at a wedding with her at her friend's wedding. And instead I called out sick and went to go drink, right? right? Like, like just, just do, do stupid, stupid shit. shit. Wow. So, so just, just like, like wilding, wilding out, out man, doing, doing stuff, just, just pissing, pissing off the whole world, world right? right? Just, just like upset, just destruction in my path. We get to the VA hospital and this was the beginning, man. This was it. This was it. My, my dad, thankfully, he didn't do what he said. But thankfully, he didn't drop my ass off and leave. I might have just walked out that door. I, as soon as he left, I might have just left too. He waited for me in the waiting room. I walked up to the emergency room window. There was a lady working there. I said, I need help. I need help. 
every time I drink, something bad happens. I have these thoughts. I have, I don't know what's wrong with me. She's like, she must have seen how distressed I was. She's like, like you know, being nice. Like, have a seat. We're going to get you situated, this and that. Man, I waited in this little room, this little doctor's room for like hours, man. My anxiety was through the roof, dude. They gave me Ativan. I didn't know what Ativan was, and Like, she's like, hey, do you, you want something that's going to help you for, for your anxiety? I'm like, yeah, I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack. Like, I feel, I, feel, I don't know. Dude, you, I mean, you know the feeling of anxiety, right? Well, I didn't know the title anxiety to the feeling. It just felt like I was losing my damn mind, bro. So they get me out of it and that kind of calmed me down. They're like, hey, you want to go upstairs? And I'm like, well, what's upstairs? They're like, well, there's lots of people like you. They're going to help you out. We're going to give you like, they're going to like talk to you about this kind of stuff. And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I came to this hospital to get help. Like, let's do this. <laughs> We go up there, dude. It was pretty much a psych ward, bro. It's pretty much a freaking psych ward, dude. But like I said, I went in there voluntarily because I was seeking help. And uh, while I was in there, they give out these little pamphlets. These little pamphlets that's that say, hey, do you want to look for church? Do you want Alcoholics Anonymous? And dude, even at that point, bro, I'm like, well, you know what? I'm in here. I ain't doing shit. I might have a problem with drinking. <laughs> Uh, you, you know, see how you see how bad that was yeah. <laughs> so like so i checked the box dude and the next following day they call my name out it's an aa meeting an alcoholics anonymous meeting i ain't never been to one before dude i thought aa was for like the bums that like hang out at the park with like a a, a paper bag right like dude i'm how old was i at that time i was 26 years old 26 right man like there's no way this is where this is where I ended up. That was my that was my bottom, right? So I'm st sitting there listening to the guy tell his story, right? Because that's how AA works. I, you know, I don't want to elaborate too much in it, but I have been in the program since since then, dude. Since my first meeting, and the dude just gave what he was saying was my life. Right. Like he was repeating. He's like, yeah, man, every time I drink, I get in fights. I crash cars. I do this. I'm like, holy shit. And the guy had 12 years of sobriety. Right. He had 12 years of sobriety, which now right now I have 12 years of sobriety. But wow, do you look, you reflect back in that moment of like, wow, maybe this is who I want to model after now. That's the whole point. Yeah. That's the whole point of the program. It's a spiritual program that gives you hope. So that that moment, that man, that environment gave me the smallest bit of hope that I needed, man, that your boy needed to to that then to 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 thrive, to to pull to pull up, right? The first pull up out of that hole. Yep. Um the darkness into the light, man. That's what that looked like, dude. I can't believe I just said all this stuff, man. But uh, that's how it went, dude. Like, so, so I go home shortly afterwards. They're like, hey, rehab, 28-day inpatient rehab for your drinking. I'm like, yeah, cool, yes. I wasn't uh, hesitant. I was actually hopeful, right, hopeful. Like, all right, maybe I do, do need this. And another thing, bro, it's like, I don't know no 26 year olds going to rehab, man. Like I told you, I was the wildest out of my friends. Like, the, like uh, 
I'm so scared shitless. I'm embarrassed. I'm shamed. I'm I'm going through all these emotions, man. I'm like, I'm I'm a, I'm a screw up. I'm screwed up mentally, right? So 28-day inpatient program, bro. At that time, that was the year 2010. Simultaneously, I treated my alcoholism, more substance abuse and mental illness. It was called SAMI, S-A-M-I, Substance Abuse and Mental Illness. So the first half of the day, I would get treatment for alcoholism. They would pull me out of class and go get treated for PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Wow, man, that's crazy. That's good. I mean, it's good that they had those programs. I mean, damn, because, you know, not, I don't think, it wasn't very broadcasted. Like, hey, come here, get help for your mental, your mental illness, your PTSD, survivor's guilt. You know, but you saw the, well, you didn't really see the writing on the wall. Your dad saw the writing on the wall and says, come here, son bitch. I'm going to do my last thing I could do to help you out. If you don't take it, I'm sorry. And then you went through this program. You found a mentor. And now you, now, now you, you graduated the program. I take it. You did the 28 day stretch, right? 28 day stretch. It was a grease. It was agreed upon by, by my, my, my warden at that time under the table as in like, Hey, we're going to grant Hector vacation hours to, to not make it known, right. To not put it all, his, sure. to not put all his business out there, which I'm doing now, but this, I don't care because this is my path. Now, this is my journey to help others. Right. Um, so yeah, dude, I graduated that so, program. Man, and then you went back to work right away? I or went. How did you transition the, back the into The thing it? about Alcoholics Anonymous is that, or being an alcoholic is not something that ever gets cured, cured. Meaning, if I were to pick up a beer right now, oh, it would be off to the races, dude. It would be off to the races. I know this because I've seen other individuals go through it, right? And I've heard stories, similar stories. So I've... I attend meetings weekly to this day, man. My sobri- my sobriety is up in the front of pri- of priority. Well, you have to because then your mental health is going to slide greatly. Next. There you go. Everything will go to hell. You know, yeah, you, you got to take care of the problem <laughs> to ensure your mental health stays fit. You know, if that's alcohol, that's drugs. You've got to make that a priority in your life. You got to be umbo number eight, number one, whatever you want to call it. It has to be up there. And I I was you know, so adamant that alcohol was not my problem i kept yelling at my dad it's it's because i have ptsd if you would have seen the things i seen done the things i done you would be drinking too um then my dad told me one time hector haven't you noticed that every time you've been to jail alcohol has been involved and i stopped and pondered on him like damn he's right damn so you go back you get out you're done you graduate it and your CEO granted you, or not, your, your warden granted yeah. you, uh, you know, this leave kind of hid it underneath the table from everybody mm-hmm. else. You know, thank God on him, you know, gave you that chance. So now you got that second chance that this, this person has given you, given you, you know, so that's two chances in a couple of years, you know? So he had to see something special in Hector to probably even do that. Cause that wouldn't happen today. They'd be like, oh, this shit can- wash yeah. your hands. Yep, liability. And you just got another problem. Now you just got unemployed. Yeah, oh yeah. You know? So I'm very grateful. So then you go back, and how did how did you transition back into the correctional world? Um, it was 
it wasn't bad. It was better, right? Of course, when I'm when Hector's not drinking, life just just automatically gets better, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, Imagine that's how that happens, right? Like, hey, you don't have to worry about flipping cars or going to jail. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, or waking up going, man, I regret that fucking night. I don't know what happened. But I have this pit in my stomach that says something happened. <laughs> right. So it got better, man. For a couple of years down the road, I promoted a sergeant. Right. Because like, hey, my communication skills are getting better. I'm not being a piece of shit of a human being. Right. I'm not like uh, I'm actually listening to suggestions of what other people are telling me. And I was a hard headed, stubborn individual, man. I would have rather died than been proven wrong or have the last word, sure. man. But no, that, that humbleness of that program, you know, and this new journey, it, it humbled me to a, <laughs> I'm a be humble or get humbled. I got humbled. Yeah. Uh, then I would eventually right. go to another prison and then I promoted to Lieutenant man. So now years have progressed. Um, getting better. I got married. So one thing that I'm, I, I really want to know though, and, and we're going to get you to get married here in a minute, but alcoholism, and I'm not sure about drugs, but I'm going to say alcohol is a huge portion of people's lives in law enforcement, in correctional, right? Because that's how they cope with that day-to-day life. You know, they're like, they get off and it's a hard job. You know, I've never done it, but I've, friends have done it and heard the stories, you know, and you're like, man, that is a tough job. Not saying it's like being in war. It's a different war that you're in. You know, it's a different aspect of a hardship kind of life. You know, because of the losses and the things you've seen, you know, I mean, you deal day in and day out with the worst of the worst. You know, these guys aren't fucking stealing butterfingers and going, you know, doing a 10 year stint, man. You know, what kind of guys did you, you know, were you keeping safe or trying to keep safe? You know, and how did that play into your sobriety? How did that not, you know, make you roll oh, back? Dude, into- that's an excellent question, man. You, This is a fire question. So, like, yeah, I c- consider myself the king of self-medication. Right. Because I know because I went through it, man, I hit it hard and now I got sobriety. So, like, I know how that I know how it works. I know the feelings that it gives you for me. It numbed me. It numbed me. Mean and it would I would black out or pass out, meaning I can be asleep. If I'm not awake, I don't have to feel what I'm feeling. Right. So. But let me tell you something right now and to any of the viewers. When I got sober, I had to deal deal with my demons raw and that was by far one of the hardest if not the hardest things i ever had to do but it is possible so this whole thing of self-medicating right if you don't die in the process it doesn't you're not gonna be erasing it you're eventually gonna have to deal with that when you sober up if god you know hope that you do sober up and it was raw, man. I had to relive the whole incident of my friend getting killed on my mom's birthday. Yeah, I didn't mention that it was my mom's birthday. And I had to call her when we got back from patrol and wish her a happy birthday while keeping all those, everything that had just transpired down. Doing it raw. Oh, bro. It's like the faucets, right? Like the, the, I cried so much that I couldn't cry anymore, right? Like it was just like, man, these poor psychs at the VA, these nursing students, these counselors, man, I opened up. I just threw, opened myself up on that in their in their rooms. 
but that's part that of that is healing. a heal that's what the healing process you know, looks like that, that's part of healing you know when you don't open up and you bottle up in a fucking bottle of jack mm. daniels that's not healing that's hurting opening up talking about it and letting people know it is fucking okay yeah. to talk about yeah. this shit this shit you don't have to live your life through it right. alone man if you do you're probably going to end up with lifelong problems you know what i mean so you go through there you you know you pour out man i didn't know we didn't know or I, both of us probably you know didn't know i had that much water in me man you cry so much you're like man can we just stop it was a lot yet? man it was a lot you know so you dealt with it and you got better. i got better the, the way i got you better know? was but, because the doctors taught me how the brain works how the brain works as far as like the parts of the brain when you experience trauma when you experience your fight or flight syndrome constantly firing off and once everything was in perspective i'm like holy this is very interesting like damn so how did you but how did you deal with that day-to-day stress of <clears throat> it took its toll on me man that's why eventually i would walk away from the job it took its toll so tell me that toll. How did how did that take your toll? Like what what is it that you know? Because most people don't know what a life like is in correctional facility officers' life. You know what is? And, I mean, unless you see some so, fucking TV, which I'll probably call that out. Yeah, bullshit, Hollywood. You know? Yeah, yeah, Hollywood. So what is what is a life like in a correctional office? It's like who do you? What kind of? So here I am with? trying to get better, trying to be better, trying to be a human, good hum, good human being. But I'm I'm in a prison, which is a very negative, toxic environment. You got murderers in there. You got people that have murdered their parents, which I find like it gives me the chills or the creeps or the willies to even think about that. You got monsters that hurt children in ways that are unfathomable you you couldn't even think up ways of of, of of files that i have read that these monsters have done to children i mean unfathomable uh and i here i am as a professional i have to keep that professionalism right there is no being biased there is no i can't I just absolutely can't. I'm a supervisor. I'm a second line supervisor. I got troops to lead. I got a, a yard to run. I had to carry myself a certain way. So they wanted you to do this job knowing you're safekeeping these monstrous fucking people that probably shouldn't be on this earth anymore and be numb about it. You just got to be prof- and have no emotion. You know? That's super difficult, man. Hey, you're asking a lot. Mind you, <laughs> without having the without having the option of going home and cracking a cold one, watching a sports game, you know, that's not wasn't an option for me. There is no alcohol. I dealt with all this shit sober. It fucking sucked. Fuck. Um, Fuck, staff man. assaults, you know, getting getting assaulted by the inmates. Not, I never thank God, never personally, but my troops, you know, I as I got older, it seemed to me like the younger generation were getting younger. So I I assume. Just the way my leaders in the army taught me, hey, take care of your troops. Um, yeah. but to be quite honest with you, bro, the, the thing that broke me was not the inmate population. It was the administration. And if you have a lot of fa- friends or family in law enforcement, that I'm pretty sure they'll tell you the same thing, man. It, the, our administration was acting more unethical than our inmate population. Wow. How? Um, because if you're in a position of power or position of leadership, you should not be retaliating 
harassment, work, uh, uh, workplace violence, bullying, uh, code of silence, corruption, sweeping it under the rug, right? And then you're accusing us at the lower levels of doing what you guys are doing when we're in fact not. Wow. So they use you guys at one escape goats to protect themselves, but two, they're not really safekeeping our, our prisoners. They're just pawns in some kind of game. The prisoners are the pawns and the lower enlisted are the pawns. And I say lower enlisted as a figure of speech, but yeah, I mean, it was imagine the same stuff that's happening on the streets. I see it on the news. I see it on the news. It's the same exact thing. When you got police chiefs throwing their troops under the bus for the sake of looking good in front of a mayor, that's the same thing. That's cowardice. Yeah. Yeah, those guys. And when I say that, like, well, Hector, how do you know? Well, I don't think anybody should be making statements on a press conference before an investigation has even been started or concluded, giving your opinions on matters. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) You know, oh, man, that's crazy. So tell me, what's your what is like the most memorable story that you have in now? I want I want two of these if you'll give them to me. Um, One, the inmate side. Like the craziest okay. thing that's happened. All right, man. When I seen. promoted a brand new sergeant, sober, here we go. Uh, I got to a new prison. The first prison I was at was a gangbanger, gang member prison. Your regular run of the mill gang members. Their their mind is there, right? They're not crazy. They're not mentally ill. They make bad choices. But I went to Donovan, which is in Southern in San Diego. And that was like a mental hospital, bro. That was bad, dude. That was wild. That was wild because these dudes' minds are not all there. And it is dangerous, extremely dangerous. So an inmate with with some string tied a knife to his hand, a weapon. He he tied the, the knife. He made a shank and he tied it between his fingers around his wrist so no matter what he did that knife would not go nowhere he can open his hand the knife is still here right and he attacked one of my officers in the building uh it was a male officer a youngster and a, and a female partner working in the building on the floor because it's two floor officers per like 200 inmates in the building so two to 200 ratio um I was on the yard, 8 p.m. at night. It was like on a Sunday. It was February of 2015. I don't remember the exact date. I think like February 8 or something. And the alarm goes off. As soon as I respond to the scene, I see a doggy pile of officers on top of an inmate. Right? The alarm is loud. It's blaring. I'm wondering what the hell had just transpired. I have my baton out. Uh, uh, the monotonous baton. It's not an asp. So like, I have, we have keys. The sergeant has a bunch of big old key set and then you have to pass your keys up to the control booth so they can turn off the audible alarm that's blaring extremely loud. So I'm in the process of handing up my keys, trying to figure out what's happening. And I hear that officer say, he stabbed me, Sarge. Oh, I look, right? And my eyes go straight to that inmate's hand. And I see the weapon protruding through his ha- through his hand like that and since i had my baton expanded already i come down we don't have guns man we don't have the fortune 
<laughs> we don't have guns, man. That's why they call it the toughest beat in the state. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I go over there and I hit the dude right on his forearm and I break his forearm, right? And the dude reels back in pain, yells. He was a white dude who had been high on meth for five days and, and went crazy and did this. In prison. In pri- Oh, drugs are a thing for sure. So when he reels back like this, that same officer that got stabbed yelled, he has it tied to his hand. I'm like, you gotta be fucking kidding me, right? Like, how can this, how can this situation just progressively get worse? So I look, and mind you, this is the first time that I've encountered a situation like this. You heard old stories from back in the old days that inmates would tie knives to their hands but would attack other prisoners. <laughs> this was this was the present time with a, attacking an officer. So, so I, I go to town on the guy, man, within the use of force policy, right? I mean, technically, we had a green light to... We had a green... Lethal force was definitely authorized. He still actively has a weapon, and he can actively use it. He can flail that broken arm around. That's what, that's what he was doing, flailing his broken <laughs> arm around. So, so, like I said, man, we had a green light to, to, to literally kill this dude because of the lethal force that was presented, right? But we didn't. We just... It, this went on for a, a while. This went on for a few minutes, man. You know, I was stomping on his hand. I was stomping on his hand as hard as I could. Now I'm trying to break the dude's hand so that it can mo- immobilize it, right? Um, mm-hmm. More officers are coming, and I'm stomping, dude. Like, I think my partners that day saw a side of me that they hadn't. Well, clearly they saw a side of me that they had never seen before. Um, and that's coming from the military. That's coming from Iraq. That's coming from combat. That's that's go time right there. Um, eventually, eventually, we got a pair of shears, scissors, cut the, uh, the, the, the string off, put them in handcuffs, and damn, dude, now comes, now we got to go get medical treatment for that inmate. He got hit, in the, initially, he got hit in the head with a baton. That's lethal force already. When he stabbed the cop, boom. Luckily, we have stab-resistant vests. He hit him in the chest a couple times. They hit him in the bicep, hit him in the arm, in the shoulder. And the, my friend cracked him, boom, with a dropped him, and then the dude just popped back up like a zombie on the meth. Yeah, fucking meth, man. People don't understand fighting somebody on meth, PCP. You're not going to come in there and think if you hit the gym fucking hard that day. No. You're going to take some motherfucker down. You want to feel? You want to feel some power? And he doesn't have to be a workout. He didn't even have to even work out. He doesn't have to be physically fit. Oh, he was skinny. He was skinny, 120 pounds. And that dude will rock your fucking world. He was skinny. Um, and, you know, so cleaning up the mess. The bad part about that, well, luckily the cop was safe. But that inmate sued me. That inmate sued me for unnecessary excessive use of force. Which, you want to know why I hated my job towards the end and all of the politics and all of the BS that comes with it. In his little allegation, he put, he wrote in there that he was minding his own business in the cell and that I went over there, pulled him out of the cell and just beat him around for no reason. Which, I mean, probably in his mind, that's what happened. You know, unfortunately, <laughs> there's this thing called reality, you know? <laughs> so that was a wild one, dude. Um uh-huh. That was a wild one, bro. And that was initially as a sergeant. And I'm new to that prison. I'm like, holy shit, is this how you, is this normal around yeah. here? Yeah. <laughs> I want to yeah. go back. <laughs> Welcome to the playground. Yeah. So what 
That's fuck. That's nuts. And the officer survived. He survived. He's, he's now a lieutenant. He's now a lieutenant, and I'm very. I like the dude, and he lives by me, and we still chop it up to this day. But uh, oh no, shit. Bro. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So that one moment kind of brought you guys together and bonded, huh? Because. Well, that moment kind of set the tone for the rest of my time at that prison, man. People were giving me pat on the backs and like thumbs up, right? And telling me uh, it, it wasn't just me. There was a lot of troops, right? The officers that were quelling. What about the other side of this? The prisoners. Did that also set the tone for the prisoners? Like, mm, man, that guy really fucking went to town on him. Like, maybe we that's, probably should cool it on his watch. That's how prison works. It's a reputation thing. It's a violent thing. Unfortunately, right? I'm letting you know, like. If you're brand spanking you, they're going to test you. They're going to test you because sure. they see a young baby face, a green new uniform. They're going to test you. Well, when you're an old salty dude like me at that time, and then now I am have to do this in front of people, right? Uh, they talk. They talk. So they with Man, somebody was saying, and they'll put extra on the story too. One time I was walking, they're like, hey, that's that's the sergeant that stomped that guy's head out. But I'm like, dude, I never didn't stomp his head. I was stomping on his hand and his leg. But uh Fuck, man. All right. So let's uh so tell me tell me about uh a story from the higher up echelon. Now we now we saw something from the prison side. Now tell me something real quick about the you know, the the higher echelon, like something that just really disgusted you. Um there was a period of time in the year 2020 during COVID. We got a horrible warden. Uh, we got a horrible warden. This dude ruled like a dictator, like a straight dictator, like Saddam. I'm telling you, there was no difference there. There was no difference in the way he ran that department. Guess what, man? He called me to be his right hand man his uh, public information officer, his PIO, which is a person that comes out in front of the TV and the news if some major incident happens, right? And I knew, I knew that was gonna be bad. I knew that was gonna be bad, but it's one of those things, man, especially in law enforcement. You tell the higher ups, no, you're now, you're now, they're now gunning for you. Yep, it, it's, just one, job. it's just one of those things, man. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. At that time, did I have a child? At that time, I had a child, a brand new, a newborn, my daughter. She's probably like one, one or two years old. I'm thinking family, right? I'm thinking, okay, it's a Monday through Friday gig, eight to four banker's hours. I haven't had this in 15 years ever. Uh, so why not, right? Like, I know what I'm getting myself into. This is about to suck. And boy, did it suck, right? He was very unethical, meaning there's policies and procedures he would pick and choose who he would hold accountable for breaking those so he would give his people a pass and gun and burn people that went against the grain went against whatever he said whatever he said wasn't necessarily on par with policy or procedure it could have violated policy right but because people are ethical they're like i'm not doing that shit well, then he would put them under frivolous investigations to get fired, terminated. And this is your livelihood, right? It's a, yeah. it's a career that puts food on the table for your family, right? And a lot of people don't have either the educational background or the other skill set to fall into another career field. So he befriended this captain that was incompetent in Competent man, that captain rose to the rank of captain in nine years, which is kind of extremely unheard of. 
Like this dude promoted at every level at the fastest time possible. He had the experience of probably like a two week officer in the department. Yeah. Yeah. I might even be giving too much credit with that one. But uh so, so he's great at pillow talk, you know? Exactly. So yeah. he befriended a Mexican mafia member. You know, you ever heard of the Mexican mafia? Fuck. Yeah. Well, he befriended a Mexican mafia member. That sounds even crazy to say, right? Like weird stuff was happening. He somehow, some way, got this Mexican mafia member to get transferred down from High Desert State Prison, which is right next to Reno, Nevada, Susanville, and brought him down to Donovan to be on his yard next to him because they were both up there at one time together, which was weird. The whole situation was weird. So the atmosphere that he created with that Mexican mafia member, he gave him an open door policy to go into his office whenever he wanted. He would tell the, the, the inmate would tell the officers to fuck off, the sergeant, the lieutenants to fuck off and go straight to the captain. So the captain in essence took all the power away from the troops on the line. Wow. Well, that created a very dangerous situation. Yeah, in prison and, you know, with the correctional officers as well. And all this is getting backed by that warden right and i have front row seats to this all so everybody's watching a train wreck about to happen but everybody's in shock everybody's in shock right and nobody's really gonna like jeopardize their job to say something because people were blowing the whistle but they were getting retaliated against the whole thing was bad man the whole well eventually that Mexican mafia member, along with his cronies, ended up stabbing two officers. Really stabbing. Bad stabbing. In the Took away the officer's baton, smashed the officer's face in, broke the officer's entire face in, almost killed him. It was uh, attempted murder on a peace officer. That captain ended up getting fired for something else, but that warden had buddies up at the higher-up headquarters, Sacramento, of the highest part of the department, and somehow got that captain his job back. Yeah, they demoted him one rank, but still, that dude should not be working in a prison. So that's wow. just a major example, right? And I was just sticking to that's my crazy. stomach. So let's let's go back to marriage. So mm-hmm. you canceled on your wife to go to her friend's wedding and you went out drinking instead yeah mm-hmm. what when did you guys end up getting married and was it after your sobriety or did you guys have a separation and then rekindled after you got sober or how did that come about i got married because she stick through you the whole time I- you were going through your shenanigans god bless my wife bro when I was in rehab, she took it upon herself to go take classes on how to deal with a loved one who's suffering with PTSD. Wow. On her own. Now, that that's a fucking partner right there, man. Yeah, dude, I'm not having always been the best, man, bro. I made a lot of mistakes, right, including that time frame and even afterwards, man. But we're still together. We're still together. We're still grinding and, you know thriving and at each other's throats at times, man, to be honest. That's part of being in a relationship. You know, this, this fucking fallacy of what these marriages online. And, you know, you see everybody on Instagram and all these happy couples like, Hey, wait till those cameras turn off. They're arguing just like we're arguing, man. Like this is bullshit, (laughs) you know, 
we go through For that. Sure. We go through that kind of level of love and trust and growing, you know, and some, some people grow through different stages. Like you grew out of addiction, you know, and she was there with you at that time. And that probably helped mold her and probably gave you, gave her respect for you for handling your issues. You know, what's crazy is the, the tables would eventually flip during that administration of that warden. <clears throat> what, this is why this is when I chose to walk away from that position of public information officer. Remember when COVID hit and everybody and a lot of people were dying and a lot yeah. of people were getting diagnosed with it. Well, my sister-in-law, her sister contracted COVID. Within a one week period, she went to the hospital. She got put in the ICU. She ended up pass, uh, passing away. She died. It, she was 41 years old. She, I'm 38. She's that was so devastating right i text the warden that night hey sir i'm not gonna be uh in tomorrow you know i just received news of my wife's sister you know what his response was bring verification (laughs) oh fucking hey like (laughs) i'm sorry dude i I didn't mean to laugh no i hear you i hear you so i got the phone and i threw it right and i was like just like your i was in i was I was done, bro. I was fucking done. So I was like, I'm going all in on my wife, right? This is priority. This is my priority. And when I said those tables turned, I had to be there for her. Um, To this day, she'll tell you, oh, you weren't there for me. But I know for a 100% fact, you know, and that was the weird part about it. Now, I'm the sane one right now. She not that she was insane, but I'm saying like now I have now I got it going on. And now she is extremely struggling. I mean, it was it almost and that lasted that grieving process lasted for two years and it's still ongoing. Right. Ain't nothing got uh, it's it's grief. It's lost, man. Sure. Sure. That's crazy. So yeah, we we've been there for each other. So during during this time, you uh, you uh, you own Torment Tactical, right? Yeah, that's a business that I started, Torment Tactical. Um, when did you start that? I started it in like August of twenty twenty one. Twenty twenty one. Yeah, twenty twenty one. I was trying. I was trying so, to. I was already. The light bulb went off to leave the department to resign. So, so you started this torment tactical in 2021. Yeah. And now, now you, cause now you did this business to transition out of correctional officer, right? Cause you knew the writing on the wall, you knew there was a lot of things at stake that, you know, you're not even saying, but I, I can see it. <laughs> your, your mental health, your wife's mental health and your livelihood Correct. is on the line. Your livelihood by every day you going in, you don't know if you're going to be fucking fired because of whatever happens. And if you don't back this more than 110%, you're fucked. Correct. Class A, fucked. And he is going to fuck you or get you killed. Boom. Damn, you gold. Yeah, that's it. So you have this overwhelming. Meanwhile, you're trying to maintain your sobriety. Yep. So you were like, aha. Light bulb, fucking business, exit yeah. strategy. Let's do it. So, torment tactical, man. Tell me about it. what. So, how? So, what did you? What made you start that? And what? 
So yeah, dude, Torment Tactical, like you said, man, enough has been enough, right? My dad was not on board with me quitting the department at all. You know, these old school people, these old school way of life people, they're, and no disrespect, but this isn't the 80s or the 90s anymore where you got to grind your ass off for 20 years for a boss you don't like and, and collect a paycheck and be miserable at the end of it and through it off. Hell no, right? So Loyalty works both ways, man. <clears throat> so I had 12 years remaining until I could retire at the age of 50. I'm looking like 12 years, 12 years is a long time, man. I was not in trouble. Con Even since I've been out, people are like, oh, you must have been in trouble to walk away from a lieutenant job. <laughs> Believe it or not, some people have enough ethics, morals, and values to choose to do the right thing in life, right? So yeah, I had a clean slate when I left, which made it even that much better. Like, pff, I ain't gotta look over my shoulder. Um, and it was initially, initially it was gonna be firearms instruction, right? Since I have combat experience, I was in the crisis response team, which is equivalent to a SWAT team. I was a host, certified hostage negotiator and I was a tactical operator. So I got that experience as well. I'm like, you know, I can put that to use. Yeah, but your experience is different than going out there and shooting in a open environment. Your experience is to how do you tactfully gain entry into a confined area? Yeah. Right? Which yeah. most of the time when people are going to get attacked in their homes, what are you in? You're in a confined area. Yeah, all of the above. You know, yeah. So it's like. How to stay alive. Yeah, exactly. That's that's awesome, man. So so that was going to be able, you know, being in the gun-loving state of California, um, right? <laughs> yeah. It's It kind of. I kind of shied away from that. I mean, I still do that, right? But it's more so focused on like personal development, coaching, physical training. And uh, that's what I'm working on right now. Okay. So you're more of a life coach, mentor yeah. coach at yeah. this point, you know, because, and I get it, man. I, I get the kind of laws in California. I get trying to be trying to teach people how to be responsible with their weapons and tactful with their weapons at the same time. But California is a very strange and difficult place to want to do that, you know, because you are looking over your shoulder, just like if you're in the correctional facility, like, man, when is that one person going to come through this class or that one thing that happens and it's going to crucify me. Correct. You know? So then you, uh, you, you switched it up to the mindset yeah. and all that good stuff. So what about, so what is it? What made you, what's that transition like? The, which what was transition? that transition like? So, like you exited and oh, you made this exit strategy. Um, so how was that exit? How was that transition? So, I kept everything under wraps for as long as possible. Okay, so Bravo was actually my middle name, my real middle name. So it's kind of cool, Hector Bravo. <laughs> so that's what I was going by, right? I'm like, you know, because once people at work start finding out about this. It, it it's like high school man it's like gossip and who knows if my higher-ups are going to use this against me which they it's not it's not you know not out of question it's not out of question at all as a matter of fact they more than likely would have right so i kept it under the wraps once it kind of i was able to hide it for four months <laughs> <laughs> was that four months longer than you expected or did you expect you to hide it longer hey bro i was working like 22 hour days bro behind the scenes like grinding like on the laptop like researching business like uh just, you know mentoring with millionaires and other business-minded people and just changing my whole mindset of being a regular um 
what I had been taught my whole life, working nine to five and, and collecting a paycheck. And this is technically the life like of an entrepreneur, you know, which 100%. little did it I is. know is this is my cup of tea right here, bro. Like this is it, man. But I had to experience what I had to experience in order for me to enjoy and or even probably even, you know, excel at this. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So now you also talk about your stories on YouTube. Yes. Yeah. So dude, my YouTube, bro, I get on there. I'm trying to be the next Jocko Willink talking about leadership <laughs> and shit, man. Uh, talking about leadership, right? Cause I have some life experience, so to say. Yeah. Do, fuck yeah you do. <laughs> do a couple videos on that. Not really big hits, nothing going on, man. California Department of Corrections, they always do dumb decisions. Well, they did a dumb decision where they started mixing inmates that they knew damn well they should not have been mixing, right? Because it's kind of like two beta fish is going to fight if we know we're going to put them together, which jeopardizes everybody's safety. I made one video on that, man, called like the Fresno Bulldog Integration video. And that one got like 40,000 hits like right off the bat. And that put me on the map. Like everybody kind of started watching it. And it was like, oh, shit. Then something clicked in my brain, like, oh, I'm, I'm, I got something here. And then it was just on and cracking with the prison talk, man. That's, I mean, that's what it takes. It takes that one idea or that one video to get it known, right? Yeah. And to change your perspective, because that wasn't your original perspective going into the YouTube, right? It was born by mindset, leadership, yeah. blah, blah, everything else. And you're like, mm, nope, that's also, we can tie that into it. But it's these stories these people want to know. So the way I carried myself, you know, as a man, as a fair individual, even inside of the walls, I, I carry myself the same way. Believe it or not, like some of my biggest fans are formerly incarcerated individuals, like former inmates, former gang members, guys that have changed their own life around, which kind of caught me off guard. But I'm like, I'm not surprised in the fact that, hey, I never did nothing dirty to nobody. You know sure. what I mean? So I don't have yeah. to. I don't have no yeah. fear of looking over my shoulder. Yeah, because you you held yourself to ethical standard, and that's probably a takeaway for correctional officers that are watching this: is man, just do your job ethically. You know, you don't have. I'm not gonna say you don't have to worry about your job inside of it, but shit, if you ever leave it, you probably don't have to worry about your safety outside of it. Yeah, it's still prison. It's still prison. I still yeah. preach that to the ones working in there. It's be on your p's and be on your toes. Be on your toes, and your safety comes first. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you go, so have you met one of these notorious inmates? And believe you know, I, I love this whole networking thing, man, this whole entrepreneurship. I actually met through one, through some of the people through there. I met like one, a famous actor. I met an actor recently. We were, you know, hanging out and it's kind of open doors and it's kind of open you. Oh, really? Yeah, dude. That's dude. That's awesome, man. Yeah. You know, I love, I love hearing people when they go into business and you know, this day and age, there's so many avenues of business. And it's, it's so fascinating to see people get into it and then talk about it, talk about their experiences. And, you know, one thing what you just touched on is networking. You network, you network, network, network. That is a key to business, you know, because what people understand, you can have a fabulous product and you can make the best website. But if it can't be found, you never network, you never market yourself, you're never going to get it found. What are you... uh so what are you working on now, man? What's next for Hector Bravo, man? Um, I've, I've been doing a lot of interviews. I've been doing a lot of podcasts like this. You know, I've been doing my rounds, so to say. 
I've actually been in th three Zoom calls with senators from the state of California involving everything that transpired while in the corrections. Um, because I'm passionate. I'm still passionate about the job, right? I just unfortunately had to remove myself from that situation to help help it. Help those Dude, that's crazy. help those still in there. Wow. I mean, that's actually that's that's inspiring that you know our leadership has taken notice of what you're doing and what you're preaching and going, hmm, you know, we should probably get back um <clears throat> get back to this, you know. So what uh, what makes you a badass, man? I want to know what makes you a badass. I don't I don't consider myself a badass, man. I don't I, do. I don't consider myself a badass. Um but I would say uh courage 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 to ask for help, you know. I, I, out of all the things I've been in, man, gunfights, uh combat, prison, the most courageous thing I ever did was ask for help because that was to me the scariest thing. And that's maybe just the way I'm built. That's maybe it's not that courage. It's not that I don't have fear. I have fear. Of, of course, I have fear. Fear is not. I have fear when I left the job. Like, hey, is this going to work out? Is it not going to work out? A fear, right? But I think it's the. Uh, it is the. Um, strategic planning behind it and not making impulsive decisions and responding versus reacting. I love that, man. That, that really, that really resonates, you know, and that, that's a, that's a true badass, man. Badasses, they're misconception. You don't have to carry a gun or be a world-class fighter. You know what I mean? Badasses right here, what you've done and what you've been through and how you deal with it. That's awesome, man, dude. Hector Bravo, where can we find you? How can people who watch this find you, learn more about you? Give us everywhere, man. Where are you at? I'm at uh, YouTube, That Prison Guard. And then I'm on Instagram, Hector underscore underscore Bravo. I also got my website, up, uh, torment-tactical.com. Fuck yeah, man. So now you know where to find him. Go check him out, hit likes, go subscribe, you know, say what's up, mm -hmm. you know, tell me love the podcast. For sure, for sure. Um, I appreciate you for uh, coming on this show and, you know, um, coming on here and telling something that you haven't told before. Never. Man. It takes a lot to open up, man. I really do appreciate it. You know, really, 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 really do appreciate it. So, Thank you for having me, man. Thank you. It was, a, it was an honor. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So. Don't forget to don't forget to hit subscribe, like, and share. Again, Hector, thank you for being on the show, buddy. And it thank was a you, pleasure. thank you. Likewise. If you have a heroic story and you'd like to share it, get in contact with us. Our information's in the bio. Also, don't forget to hit the subscribe, like, and share. And then I'll see you on the next episode, badasses.